This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this is Matt Splained. Now, He's been hiding in the shadows for the past couple of weeks, but resident futurist Culture Pop's Matt Armitage is stepping back into the light to tell us why science is slick. Last time, it felt that science is slick was just a collection of scary robot stories, Matt. And there's plenty more where those came from. Uh, do you want me to get cracking? Uh, not particularly. Okay, how about I start <laughs> us off with something that should have maybe... Mm, leave less uh, of a bad taste in the mouth how about we start with something like chocolate smart chocolates that implant ai nanobots in your brain strangely that's actually not too far away from some of the stories that we'll get to later (laughs) but um no for now chocolate is just uh, chocolate and this is a story actually about perceptions um Mm. and i do eat a lot of chocolate now nobody would ever guess that looking at you and that's why there's no video version of this show. Uh, but I mostly eat uh, 100% cocoa dark chocolate. So that's basically cocoa powder in a bar. There's no mm. milk, there's no sugar, there's no sweetness. And after a few years of eating that, I genuinely find most milk chocolates too sweet and sickly. I've grown to prefer the bitterness that you get with unsweetened chocolate. How about you? What kind of chocolates are uh, your kind of favorite? Oddly enough, uh, the one that you recommended not too long ago, the Marks and Spencer's brand drop, um, a high uh, cocoa amount is something I'm, I'm, I'm partial to. But as a as a general rule, I I, I don't eat chocolate. I'm not a huge fan of uh, chocolate or, or or sweet things. And people say I have no soul. But um, you know, you probably wouldn't believe that uh, I could change what you thought about that chocolate, as in physically change the way that you perceive its taste Mm. by changing the color of the packaging that it comes in. But that's exactly what researchers in Brazil have discovered. A team at the University of uh, Campinas in Brazil surveyed 420 people, half of them in Brazil, half of them in France, to see what they thought chocolate would taste like in different colored packaging. Wait. So they didn't actually eat the chocolate. I know, it's a bit of a disappointment, um, but the researchers wanted to test the perception of what it would taste like. So kind of like, you know, judging the book by its cover almost. Well, very much so. You know, they were sent photos of dark chocolate and milk chocolate bars in these different colored packagings, uh, yellow, red, pink, green, blue, brown and black, I think. And they were asked to award points on a scale of uh, one to nine about various attributes that they thought the chocolate might have, including how bitter or sweet they expected it to taste. Mm. Now, just to be clear, the bars of chocolate uh, are the same in size and shape. It's only the wrapping, the color of the wrapping that changes. And the respondents weren't actually told what the goal of the survey was. And the darker the packaging, the more bitter they thought it would be, and and yellow for banana, maybe. Well, pretty much. Um, And, you know, the the reverse being the case as well. So the chocolates, both milk and dark, in the lighter packaging, as you mentioned, yellow or uh, pink as well, they were expected to be the sweetest. No, not necessarily banana. Uh, I know. Uh, What's really interesting is how they rated what they thought it would taste like. 
So the milk chocolate was judged most likely to be enjoyed in black packaging because people wanted it to have a slightly bitter, less sweet Mm. edge to it. Mm. However, dark chocolate in the same black packaging was judged to be least likely to be enjoyed. The perception was that it would be too bitter or, as it's also known, perfect for me. Uh, You mentioned that the survey was split between uh, respondents in in Brazil and France. Were there any uh, geographical variations? Well, you might imagine that colours have different meanings in different cultures. So I think the team was quite surprised to see the lack of variation between the French and Brazilian respondents, especially as the French as a nation eat a lot more chocolate per capita than Brazilians, I think almost three times as much. And the chocolate they eat overall has a much higher cocoa content. So that adds the suggestion that these uh, color cues are actually universal. Perhaps they're even species-wide traits. Obviously, you'd need to Mm. do more studying for that. But it might seem that this is an odd thing to study. You know, you might be wondering why somebody is studying chocolate bar wrappers. But I guess there are a lot of behavioral lessons that can be learned it will definitely be useful to product developers. Um, It'll give them a better appreciation of how, as you said, the cover is likely to prejudge the book inside. And yes, the next stage is to start doing taste tests to see if those perceptions are carried through to the products themselves. So that's a study I might sign myself up for. Of course. So, um, Is it now time for scary robots and uh, machine intelligence? I mean, you've been away for a while, Matt. Well, I can give you another story about bitterness first. I I imagine that's something you have a deep well of. Well, pretty much infinite. I'm happy to say it's uh, my rocket fuel. So what we have is a cuddly and uplifting story about vampire bats. Yeah, of course it is. Of course, yeah. Hush. Uh, A team at the Leibniz Institute for Food Systems Biology in Germany is researching to see if vampire bats avoid bitter foods for a reason. In fact, you could call this a bat taste story. Uh, Common vampire bats. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll let you have that. Go on. on. Uh, Common vampire bats (laughs) don't have any sweet taste receptors. Unlike their cousins, the fruit bat, they probably lost them during that evolutionary process as their diets diverged. But despite the fact that they lost their ability to taste sweet things, they've retained some of their bitterness receptors, uh, three of them, in fact. So the team in Germany wanted to find out why. So they inserted DNA sequences for the bat's taste receptors into human kidney cell cultures. Wait, this is a story about vampire bats and and human DNA experiments, and this is supposed to make people feel good about the world? Do people not watch sci-fi anymore? What's going on? Well, the alternative is that we go straight to the stories about AI-assisted brain cells in 3D-printed bioreactors. But actually, this story isn't as dark as it sounds. Uh, Human kidney cell cultures are often used for studies involving taste, We actually have taste and scent receptors all over our bodies in various organs and even in fluids like semen. So, no, they aren't trying to create Count Brad Bueller or some (laughs) other human vampire in their lab. The German team thinks that some of the receptors may be a hangover from an evolutionary ancestor who ate insects or the occasional plant. 
but they were also interested that one of the three receptors is used to taste metal ions. So that would be an adaptive trait rather than a genetic throwback. Well, that's what they're exploring. So the team needs to do more research to prove the idea. But right now they're pursuing Mm -hmm. the idea that it would allow the bats to taste for salts in water. Wow. Wow. Um, So these salts occur naturally in springs in the parts of Colombia that common vampire bats are are native to. And the idea is that salts like magnesium sulfate, which are are common in those springs, uh, they have an effect on the metabolism and they could cause the blood the bats drink to clot more easily and make them feel ill in the process. So Mm. these taste receptors would enable them to avoid or to just drink sparingly at water sources that are high in salts that could disrupt their feeding. Hard to believe that a story about making it easier for bats to drink blood is a highlight of today's episode. Um, But, you know, let's continue to fall into this abyss. I really don't know what you're looking for today. I've given you chocolate and taste. No. Um, Do you think uh, we'd be on safer ground with music? Possibly, although that episode we did about AI-generated music was uh, pretty unsettling. Yeah, I use those as nighttime lullabies now. Uh, You (laughs) can make pretty much anything uh, a scarring and terrifying experience. Uh, That's probably why my event company for kids' parties didn't really take off. Apparently, you can recreate the set of Saw 2 authentically. But uh, scientists uh, are trying to better understand how spiderwebs function have turned the webs into music. Of course, Musical spiderwebs from Jack Skellington, right here. You know I consider that to be a compliment, right? Uh, (laughs) I've read this piece on The New Scientist, and I'm not sure if it was the writer Ian Morse or one of the researchers who brought up this idea of the spiderweb being a kind of augmented reality environment for the spider. And I find that idea fascinating that other creatures have had augmented reality for millions of years, and Only now, with all our technology, we're starting to create augmented reality for ourselves. Now, apparently, a lot of spider species see very poorly, despite all those eyes. So the web is both its home and a sensor, according to Marcus Bueller at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, who presented this study at a recent scientific conference. So each of those strands of the web are different lengths and tensions. So they vibrate at different frequencies, like um, a guitar string. Absolutely, just like that. So Bueller's team turned that into a 3D audio-visual virtual reality map that people can understand. They were Mm. able to scan the webs and calculate the frequency of each strand according to its length and elasticity. And that enabled them to assign tones to each of those strands, which are within our hearing range. Obviously, they made some tonal and harmonic decisions to make it sound, you know, pleasing. Equally, they could have made it sound like Shelob attacking Bilbo in Lord of the Rings, but, you know, that's not as uh, people-friendly. So Mm. users of the 3D model can then connect individual sounds to the movement of each thread. So you can start to, to build up this mental picture of what's happening within that little world of the web, even if you have your eyes closed. So what we're about to play you, this is what the world of the spider might sound like. 
And I think that's really pretty. You know, it's a shame we can't experience more of the world like that. Yeah, uh, some days you're left speechless. And I guess we'll finally have some uh, soothing robot and um, AI destruction after the break. You're listening to Matt Splaint here on BFM 89.9. I have a dream. Be firmly motivated. BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. And uh, so far on today's episode, it's kind of read a little bit like a Halloween special. We've had spider's webs, spooky music, and vampire bats with only some bitter chocolate to sweeten the proceedings. I mean, what's next? Robotic spines taking over the world? They're pretty close, actually. Uh, scientists in South Korea are working on a prototype artificial nervous system because why wouldn't you? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, organic nervous systems, they're amazing things. You know, they allow us to respond intuitively, to do all kinds of things in a flash, almost as though we weren't thinking about them. You know, when someone throws a ball to you, your eye responds to those visual stimuli and it sends electrical pulses to synapses in the brain. That information is processed in fractions of a second as your brain tells your body how to respond. So you put out your hand and you perform an effortless catch or you duck and get out of the way in pretty much every case when someone throws something to me. Uh, <laughs> urge to get out of the way, though, is more of an automatic response. It's that danger, danger, uh, you know, roll over and play dead. Whereas mm. that catch response is something we typically have to learn through repeated attempts. Uh, I think we featured a story a few weeks ago about robot musculature. And, we did. Uh, yeah. And the machines having muscles that can tense and harden in ways that suit a particular task so that its aptitude increases the more it practices that process. And that the muscle memory can then be shed to allow it to uh, adapt to a new task. Well, exactly. Um, but that process of learning those tasks is much harder for machines than it is for us, which is what the teams at these three South Korea universities are hoping to achieve with their nervous system to allow machines to learn in ways that are faster and more like our own. So they built a simple nervous system to respond to external stimuli. It consists of a, a photodiode, which is basically the eye, the component mm. that responds to light and converts the signals. It's quite interesting what scientists consider to be simple. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a transistor, which is the synapse that carries the information. And then an artificial neuron circuit, um, that's probably the most complicated bit, and that serves as the brain for the task. All of this is then linked to a robotic hand, and it catches a ball that's dropped from above. So over the course of repeated attempts, that process of stimulus, thought, response, reduced from a, a, a massive, certainly in human terms, two and a half seconds, to under a quarter of a second. I'm assuming that... Um other than in your world, the purpose of this isn't to create uh, an army of uh, a robot army capable of destroying us. Well, I should remind everyone that MatNet is self-aware and it is everywhere. But uh, certainly it's true that this can be used to develop 
better robots. We could potentially put sensors on people doing specific tasks that we want to train machines to do. The information from those sensors create a kind of blueprint for the machines to emulate and perhaps even eventually improve on. And it gives them that critical capacity that we have, which is adaptability. So in most production or task-based environments, robots are making the same pre-programmed movements and functions over and over again. A system like this would enable them to deal with uh, external stimuli that they haven't anticipated. And that would be crucial to machines operating in human environments, say in our homes or on our streets. But another massive application is to restore mobility to people, either through prosthetic or assistive devices. And this kind of technology would help to reduce the delay times that current prostheses suffer from and maybe increase the amount of granular and fine motion control that the wearer is able to exercise. You know what? You'll be brewing a brains in jars next. Have you been reading my notes? Um, that is... <laughs> Literally what our next story is. So uh, <laughs> research teams at the Indian Institute of Technology in Madras under a guy called Ikram Khan uh, and their colleagues over at MIT have collaborated to create a biochip that can be used to culture and grow human brain tissue and costs around $5. Uh, what? $5. Yeah. So the initial tests of the device showed that the human brain tissue lived and grew inside the chip for up to seven days until it essentially grew out of space to expand into. What's even more incredible is that as the cells multiplied, they start to form that uh, ventricular structure that we typically see in brains. Now, that's not unique to the brain. We've seen similar behavior in other cultured organ cells. Even outside the body, if they're cultured outside the body, they're pre-programmed to create the shape and function of those organs. You, you said it's a chip. Well, officially, it's a microfluidic bioreactor. It measures about four centimeter by six centimeters. So it's, you know, kind of that, that uh, laboratory slide type size. Mm -hmm. What makes this technology really cool is not just the low cost, and the cost aspect is really important. Its makers hope that that cost will open up the field of tissue culturing globally. Uh, but it was already uh, possible to culture brain cells, but not very well. Most of the devices that we currently have are sealed to prevent contamination, and that makes it very hard to deliver the nutrients like amino acids that the tissue needs. So it tends to die after a few days. And those chambers also aren't built for visibility. So you can't see what's happening as the tissue grows. Khan wanted to address all of those issues, adding nutrients to keep the tissue alive and being able to view it all within a low-cost package. This really does sound like uh, science fiction, though. Well, yeah, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, that's one of the lovely parts of doing these science is slick pieces, uh, showing that sometimes our science reality is both stranger and more beautiful than science fiction. So Khan's $5 device includes the growing platform. It has 
tubes to add nutrients and remove waste. It has a fluid warming compartment, although I don't know what that's for. And it has drug injection channels. And of course, the whole chamber is viewable. Best of all, it can be 3D printed using common materials that are typically found in dental clinics. Now, I'm almost scared to ask, but are there any pleasant purposes for this? Well, it isn't for growing mutant humanoid brains, you know, as much as I'd like it to be. Uh, <laughs> I should point out that Khan has founded a startup using the technology to try and bring his vision of cheap brain tissue culturing to the world. One of its primary purposes is to see how an individual is likely to respond to certain medications. That's why it has those drug injection channels. And right. It's one of the reasons that the cost aspect is so important, because this will allow a lot more people to enjoy personalized healthcare at an affordable level. And I guess it will also remove some of those, you know, trial and error prescribing mechanisms that we typical, uh, typically experience with uh, medical providers. But more than that, I think it would be really fun to tell people I've got some bits of their brain growing in my garage. <laughs> okay. Um, what else is science doing to protect us, uh, Matthew, right now? Well, this is a story from a few weeks ago. It's about a team of researchers at Princeton who've come up with a way to improve the ability of self-driving cars to detect other vehicles, pedestrians, cyclists, buildings, and things like road signs. As some of today's earlier stories have pointed out, autonomous systems, even linked to the fastest processors and supercomputers, struggle to make the right decisions in the same kind of time frame that we manage. Mm. Uh, also, we've seen that as good as they are, self-driving car systems can be tricked. They can misunderstand uh, road signs. Uh, they can misread uh, road signals as well. They can mistake a lorry trailer pulling uh, across a road as the sky. And weather conditions can easily distort the ability of systems like onboard radar to effectively determine what's happening in the world around them. Things like fog, rain or snow can all disrupt the ability of those visual systems to reflect radio signals, which can lead to masking objects and uh, also presenting false images. I I'm getting the idea that you want us to wear sensors to protect us from the cars or something like that, don't you? Well, I'm not saying that I do, but that's the premise that the Princeton team came up with. Rather than constantly pushing the technology, running the vehicles to the margins, we could simply make the rest of the world more visible to the cars. So they've come up with a device that concentrates the radar signals that those vehicles send out, allowing them to reflect a larger signal back, which is more easily recognized by the car. For the moment, the prototype they've produced is expensive. I think it's around $2,000. But they think with mass production, they could make them cheap enough to be embedded in things like public architecture, uh, into clothing like cycle jackets, you know, in much the same way that visibility tape and other reflective technologies are now incorporated into uh, many of those functions and materials. Doesn't it feel the wrong way around, though? 
Yeah, I mean, to me, it does. And the team has faced quite a lot of pushback on that same note. So I can see the logic bit of it being incorporated into physical infrastructure, Mm. uh, making it easier for a car to recognize and slow down at a speed bump, for example, or knowing where and what a, a pedestrian crossing or a stop sign is. But largely, I think these would just be stopgap measures. Uh, You know, especially since the start of the pandemic, the pace at which autonomous vehicles and drones are being introduced into public environments is accelerating. And we know that the technology is still a long way from being foolproof. Uh, And what about the human element, making us wear sensors to keep us safe from vehicles? I mean, that definitely makes me uneasy. I think it makes a lot of people uneasy. If those sensors are cheap, I think it's fine to include them in cars. You know, you can build them into bike frames. You can put them on buildings and road signs. But I think we should draw the line when it comes to people. There's a danger in making us wear this kind of device that it shifts the responsibility and the blame. You know, someone would say, well, Richard was hit by a car because he wasn't wearing a sensor. I'm always the one getting hit. It's always me. Okay, Matt was hit by a car because he wasn't wearing a sensor and because he says things on radio that make people want to hit him with cars. Uh, Bypassing the fact that there's no situation other than the one I just described where a a self-driving car hitting a person is acceptable. But we already see that creeping a little bit into the debate about cars and bike helmets. You know, the helmet is there to protect the rider in a fall. It's not there to protect the rider from motor vehicles. So that's not a direction you want to see the conversation heading in? No, you know, we already have enough fights with big technology going on without taking on the car makers as well. If the technology in the vehicles isn't adequate, it's not up to the job of keeping us safe, then it shouldn't be on the road. And that's Mm. why it's so important to stay in control of the narrative. Designers and manufacturers have a legal, a moral, and an ethical responsibility to make the products they sell to us safe to use. It should never be our legal responsibility as uninvolved third parties to be required to do that job on behalf of commercial companies. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you. You have, of course, been tuned in to Matt Splained. You can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. And if you missed any part of the show, you can download the podcast wherever you normally download your podcast from. This has been Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.